Welcome back to Psychic Crime. I'm your host, Nicole Mann, and once again, I just want to thank you so much for all of your support. I see Italy, Sweden, New Zealand hanging in there, continuing to listen. I just really appreciate it. I say this every time. I always thought it would just be my family listening, so I really appreciate all the love and support I'm getting from all of you listeners all around the world. I appreciate it so much. Thank you for continuing to hang in there. We have new merchandise up. We have some stuff um, for Juneteenth, which for those of you who are not aware, Juneteenth is a celebration of the official end of slavery. So we have some new Juneteenth merchandise up. We also uh, have some merchandise that, for those of you who are not aware, there is a very awful and horrible bill that has been passed in Florida here in the United States. And that bill does not allow them to even speak about any type of LGBTQ plus education at all in schools in Florida. So if the teacher has a partner, they can't even talk about their partner. They can't talk about anything about their life. They can't literally, it's called don't say gay because literally they cannot say LGBTQ. They can't say gay. They can't say bi. They can't say anything at all. Um, it's heinous. It's pretty much they're trying to erase LGBTQ plus people like they don't exist. It's it's basically they're trying to go back to don't ask, don't tell, which is really heinous and awful. And so there is a new design and all of the apparel proceeds, about half of the apparel proceeds is going to go to the ACLU of Florida to help them fight this don't say gay bill. So this design um, you can get it in tank tops, t-shirts, uh, unisex t-shirts, women's t-shirts, juniors t-shirts. You can get it in hoodies. You can get it in sweatshirts. So any uh, piece of apparel, half of the profits will go to the ACLU of Florida to help them combat the Don't Say Gay Bill. Uh, so we do have, like I said, new designs. Uh, up in the merchandise store, one of them is going to uh, have the Half of the profits go to combat this bill. Um, and then like I said, there's other designs that are up for Juneteenth. So check that out. The link will be uh, up for you guys. And um, like I said, I just really appreciate it. So show your support, grab some merch. And it's not just apparel. You can pick however you would like the design. So if you want to grab it in merchandise, if you want to get it as a t-shirt or a hoodie you can also get it in a water bottle you can get it on cups you can get it stickers you can get it on mouse pads you name it you can just slap it on whatever you would like it to be on so made it as simple as possible everything is made to order and it ships anywhere in the entirety of the world i wanted to make it as simple as possible for you guys to get your fix so all the new merch is up and available and so please stop by, show your support, whether it is to help um, combat the Don't Say Gay Bill in Florida, or if you wanted to just show your support for Juneteenth, which like I said, Juneteenth is a celebration of the official end of slavery when they actually went to the plantations and told the slaves that slavery had ended. It was when the last slave was told that they were free. So either way, really appreciate it. So this week we are going to look into a corrupt police official. 
Although studied and researched, the topic of police corruption in large part remains a mystery. Sir Robert Peel was credited with the concept that police depend on citizen cooperation in providing services in a democratic society. As such, detrimental aspects of police misconduct cannot be overstated. In terms of public trust for law enforcement, recent polls show that only 56% of people rated the police as having a high or very high ethical standard as compared to 84% when it comes to doctors and nurses. Over the past few decades, great strides have occurred in law enforcement professions. To begin with, many police agencies have avoided hiring candidates that have low ethical standards and have identified those onboard employees early in their careers who might compromise the department's integrity. In addition, research has discovered new methods of testing candidates for their psychological propensity to act ethically. For example, some places do the psychop they do what they call the scale of psychopathy test to determine if people are predisposed to be psychopaths. So a lot of times when people fail their psyche vows and they will not let them be police officers, it's because if they're predisposed to psychopathy, meaning they believe that they're psychopaths or they're pre-psychopath, meaning they are um, predisposed to psychopathy, meaning like, so on the scale of psychopathy, if you're pre-psychopath, meaning given any power, you could become a psychopath, they obviously can't allow you to be put in a position of authority because it means that you will abuse it. So whenever you hear someone failed the psych eval and that's why they can't be a police officer, that's a very good indicator that they were given the scale of psychopathy test and they failed. However, unethical conduct by the nation's police officers continues to occur in departments great and small across the country. Research into police corruption offers some understanding of the phenomenon in the hope of rooting out this behavior and that serves to undermine the overall legitimacy of law enforcement. Theories on the role of society in law enforcement, the negative influence of an officer's department, and a person's own natural tendencies to engage in unethical behavior have been offered as explanations of police corruption. So we pose these questions. Is this a noble goal to rid the nation of police corruption, or should we be ridding the nation of unethical individuals? First of all, the discussion of ethics as related to law enforcement must begin with a definition of integrity. One researcher has said that it is the sum of virtues required to bring about the general goal of protection and service to the public. They create a list of characteristics that they feel officers must possess in order to have integrity. One is prudence, the ability to discern between conflicting virtues and decide the best action to take in the moment. Second is trust, loyalty and truthfulness in relationships between officers and citizens, fellow officers and supervisors. Next is effacement of self-interest, meaning your ability to put your own personal interests aside in order to serve the public. Officers may exploit their authority to further their self-interest. Courage. This means the difference between cowardice and foolhardiness. Oftentimes, some officers may take the easy road and sit things out when we need them on the front lines. Intellectual honesty. Not knowing something 
and being humble and courteous and courageous enough to admit that you don't know the answer. And this isn't just something that happens in police work. This happens when you are, this happens in my field as well as a clinician. I need to be able to be humble enough to say, I don't know and ask for help. Justice, not in its normal context, but rather adjusting to what is owed to a particular citizen, even when it may contradict what is strictly owed. So justice, we're not talking about what you believe justice is, like when you come in with the formed idea of who did it and bringing that person to justice, but justice in the context of what should be what should be justice served, justice served versus justice denied. You may be correct, this person may be the person who committed the crime, but what you feel is a justifiable sentence may not necessarily be justice. For instance, in the context of a woman who was human trafficked and she shot her trafficker, is it justice for her to serve 15 years in jail when all she did was commit self-defense? No, not really, but it happens sometimes in the way that our justice system is put together. That sometimes, for example, in the way that the stand your ground laws are written in certain states, sometimes certain people don't get the same allowances for self-defense that others do. So when we talk about justice in allowing citizens to get the justice that they deserve, you have to put aside your personal feelings about the person and make sure they get the justice that they deserve, not the justice you want to see meted out on them. Responsibility, intending to do the right thing, clearly understanding what the right thing is and being fully aware of other alternatives that may exist. Taking personal responsibility rather than finding excuses for mistakes and poor judgment. And leadership, leadership that constitutes an integral part of police work. As the head of an organization holds the ultimate responsibility for all its shortcomings. Conversely, this individually greatly can influence the success of an entire agency. As such, it leaders have a significant impact in preventing corruption. In working towards the goals of a department, the top executives play a primary role in forming the organ organizational climate. Those who strive to maintain a high standard of ethical conduct can serve as the key to prevent corruption and maintain the public's trust. As one researcher explained, principled leaders do not act to protect their own egos or try to put on a good appearance without substance in their decisions or efforts or attempt to intimidate those underneath them. Instead, principle-based executives who work with their subordinates can take an important step towards creating an ethical climate by developing an agenda that explains the moral purposes of their departments. But leaders bent on taking on the tasks of stopping corrupt behavior in their departments must be careful. Unless a thorough understanding as to the nature, extent, and organization of the corruption exists, efforts to combat it may be counterproductive. Without gaining the necessary understanding of the department's climate, administrators actually may lower morale among the members and strengthen the solidarity of those who start to doubt the ability of people to effectively lead their agency. Moreover, 
such actions can waste department resources. One of the things that many people don't understand about internal affairs is a large part of what they do is protect police officers from themselves. So a lot of times people don't understand what the big deal is about taking a job under the table, working the door at a club, or if you take a cup of coffee here or there, or you take a lunch here or there. The issue is that criminals, they profile cops the way that cops profile criminals. And they are looking for cops that take that kickback here or that cup of coffee there. And it's not just you that, that not just the cop that they're profiling, they're profiling their family members and friends as well. So while the cop may be like, yeah, I'll take that rip. And for those of you who have always wondered, what is a rip? What are, what are they talking about on those TV shows? It's a paid vacation day. So the cop may be like, fine, I'll take a month of paid vacation, whatever, I'll lose it, I don't care. I'll, I'll take the demotion, you know, I'll lose some of my pension, it's whatever. You may not be bothered by it, and that's why you may not have an issue, but what about your wife? Would your wife believe then if somebody showed up and told your wife that you taking that job on the door is going to cost you your pension? You may know it's bullshit, but your wife may not. And she may believe them and end up working as a bad man for a drug dealer. That's what IA tries to protect cops from. People who would do things like that. You are too short-sighted to realize that they would do something like that. They would go after your wife or your teenage kid who would absolutely believe that they're going to do something like that. And so they're going to go and the moment that they make that first delivery for them, your whole family is screwed. And so that's why internal affairs is so hard about small stuff because the small stuff, it piles up until they have leverage and they may not come to you because they know that you have integrity and that you recognize they don't really have enough to use against you that you're really going to have anything to lose. Your family may not recognize that. And so they may leverage that against the family member. That's a lot of what internal affairs does is they try and stop these things before they get to a point where they do have anything. They are protecting you from yourselves because a lot of times they're too short-sighted to recognize that it could lead to something bigger or it could lead to them being able to use a family member against you. So um, that is one of the, the bigger picture things that a lot of people don't recognize. And, and they're not as vicious against internal affairs as people seem to think. Um, while yes, a lot of them don't understand them coming after a lot of the smaller things, they're not as angry when they do catch bad cops because nobody wants a bad cop. It makes everybody look awful. Um, so while leaders certainly play an integral part in forming the overall climate of their organization, they alone cannot ensure that high levels of integrity are always maintained. During a national symposium on police integrity, one speaker noted that it's still the sergeants, lieutenants, and captains who have the daily and ongoing responsibility to ensure appropriate workplace standards are maintained. But while ethical supervisors help maintain an ethical workplace, the opposite also remains true. Uncaring and incompetent officials can also promote misconduct. The possibility exists that no matter how conscientious they are and how thoroughly they do their jobs, First and second level commanders cannot keep an officer inclined to act unethically from doing so. The ratio of officers to supervisors is too high to allow for close enough oversight. However, in police work, leadership is not solely defined just by rank. 
Instead, all officers need to exude leadership skills because they operate for the most part without direct supervision at all times. Officers receive training and a large quantity of rules and regulations that are entrusted to them to help them perform their day-to-day -day duties within guidelines. Supervisors generally are not involved unless a complaint against an officer or a serious incident requires a response. So while it's incumbent upon our leaders to create an atmosphere that promotes ethical conduct, it falls to each member of the organization to ensure that this standard of integrity is carried out. Finally, mentoring young officers can allow corruption to spread. Once a void is created by a lack of strong or cohesive leadership, it will fill with substandard or unethical officers looking to bolster their ranks. Therefore, it becomes imperative that effective leaders who share the same goals be in place to set the standard for subordinates to see and follow. The obvious sought-after result of all of this research into police corruption is the eradication of this. Such a topic um, plays an integral role in determining the ethical standards that we follow. As such, it becomes crucially important to focus efforts towards specific elements, like the ones that I mentioned before. A major consideration in rooting out misconduct is not just hiring, is not just trying not to hire unethical individuals, but it's having agencies adequately screen the candidates and ensure that they hire the most conscientious people because they have the best integrity. Conscientiousness can be assessed through conduct because as one researcher states, incorruptible person is truthful in words and deeds just because truthfulness has become second nature. Once new hires are on the job, their leaders must continue to work towards creating an atmosphere of ethics and integrity, fostering such a climate as an integral part of reducing unethical behavior. In a study conducted by the International Association of Chiefs of Police, of their top 10 issues determined as critically important to officers actively working in the field, positively the research concluded that a majority of agencies surveyed commit resources to train instructors to teach ethics and 72% of organizations said that they provide some ethics related training beyond the basic academy experience. But while almost all of these agencies, 83% top taught ethics to the recruits in the academy, only 34% had ethics as a category in their field training reports for new officers. So 83% made sure that they taught ethics in the academy, but only 34% retaught ethics to new recruits. So that once they graduated the academy and then were what we call boots or new recruits or new hires, only 34% of agencies made them retake ethics. While ethical supervisors help maintain an ethical workplace, uncaring and incompetent officials are going to re-promote that misconduct. And that is what is evidenced by not reinforcing these ethics. Now, in my line of work, I have to retake an ethics uh, class and pass it Basically, I have to get ethics certified every year by a governing ethics body. Every year. Is that not insane? Every year. And third, only 34% have them do it once they graduate. 
And then they never talk to them about ethics again. And ethics is the backbone of the entirety of their job. That's insane to me. An apparent recognized demand exists for expanding the training hours on ethics. Really, you think? More quality training resources and greater involvement with ethics trainings for all levels of police. But the number of hours dedicated to training remains insignificant in the face of this need. You are preaching to the choir. On December 14th, 2012, cops arrested a 26-year-old named Christopher Loeb in Smithtown, New York. When his mother Jane arrived, the officers finally relented and drove him to the Suffolk County Police Department's 4th Precinct in nearby Hoppock, where they chained him to the floor. And no, that is not normal in the United States to chain people to the floor. Loeb was kept in the dark about his arrest and denied access to a lawyer, but it soon dawned on him that the treatment might have something to do with a black duffel bag he'd recently stolen from the backseat of an unlocked black 2008 GMC Yukon. A heroin user who dabbled in burglary from time to time to support his habit, Loeb had found things in the bag that he thought could have possibly belonged to a police officer. You know, mace, a gun, handcuffs. But he also found things that pointed to something much, much darker. According to a friend who talked to him after this, he found things like porn that featured young boys. According to court documents, James Burke, who at the time was the chief of police for Suffolk County, derived extreme pleasure in presiding over the continued torture and abuse of Loeb at the police station. He told fellow officers that it reminded him of his old days coming up on the force. He jokingly called the cops who helped him his palace guards. One of the men allegedly told Loeb he was going to, oh my God, this is horrible, that he was going to assault his mother during the beating. And Burke even threatened to murder Loeb with a, hot, with a fatal overdose of heroin that might later be arranged to appear to be self-inflicted. Look, I've said this before, I have police officers in my family. One of them worked in internal affairs. This is heinous. Immobilized but conscious of the fact that Burke was the owner of the bag with the alleged porn stash, Loeb called the chief a pervert. Newspapers typically softened the word to pervert. And the FBI say Loeb was mistaken. But when Loeb retold the story, as documented in a video interview, he called him a pedophile. According to Loeb, when the chief heard the word, he exploded with rage and drove his thick finger into the young man's face. Robert Trotta, an outspoken ex-cop who is now the county legislator for Suffolk's 13th district, has been struggling to pass bipartisan legislation to reform the police for more than two years. He compared the atmosphere of paranoia and fear the officers experienced there to the KGB during the Cold War. I had to get out of the police department, he stated. That way I could be free to talk about what was going on there. Suffolk is so dirty, concurs Peter Fiorola, a retired New York City cop who's lived in Long Island since the 60s. 
every place has corruption, but on a scale from 1 to 10, Suffolk is an 11. From the outside, it seems strange that Burke was given so much authority. How could a man who in 1993 carried on a sexual relationship with Loretta Rickenbacker, a convicted prostitute and drug dealer, who'd been arrested multiple times in the very precinct where he acted as a supervisor, become in 2012 the top cop on a force of over 2,500 officers? Let me explain why this is such a big deal. So he was busted having a sexual relationship with her in his car. When you get in trouble for something like that in internal affairs, it's called a breach of public trust offense. And whenever you have a breach of public trust offense, you are automatically supposed to be kicked out of the running for any type of leadership positions within law enforcement. And that's why it's so bizarre that he was busted having sexual relations with a prostitute in his patrol car and then allowed to go on to become the chief of police. It never should have happened. Described by those who knew him as a sex-obsessed narcissist, Burke, a squat, sharp-talking, middle-aged bachelor with a vulgar disregard for any social norms, could also be charming when he wanted to be. He carried the reputation of an old-school cop, you know, the kind who'd beat you with a phone book, and his natural intelligence helped compensate for his lack of an education. Three former officers described him as an inspired public speaker, and the internal affairs report into his relationship with Rickenbacker described Burke's reputation as that of an extraordinary street cop. That's how they describe people who, like I said, like to take a phone book to you with an intimate knowledge of local street people. That's cute, an intimate knowledge of local street people. That's funny. It's been documented by Internal Affairs that Burke lost his gun on one outing with Rickenbacker. See, losing your gun, that's like a, that's, that's, no. When, when you're a cop, losing your gun is like the absolute, absolute no-no. Like that you, that's the one thing you are not allowed to do. Losing your gun should be a career-ending offense. So, like, absolutely not. You lose your gun. That should be it. You should be placed on administrative leave. Like, that should be, you should be put on desk duty. You should not be able to leave the building. That should be the best case. You should be assigned to an evidence locker. That, that should be, if you're lucky. Most cops who lose their gun... They legitimately, that's the end of their career. So the idea that he lost his gun while having sex with a prostitute in his car, absolutely not. This is insane. And the pair, while the pair were, like I said, while the pair were having sex in his patrol car, but based on conversations with others about the incident, Trotta, who was a prosecutor, suspected that Burke may have been shaking down drug dealers for crack and using the contraband to make the sex better. There are few law enforcement agencies where a man like Burke would be a candidate for leadership, like I said. But Suffolk County is an exception to all of the rules, apparently. The county's demographics render it uniquely positioned for the kind of corruption embodied by men like Burke. According to Bruce Barquette, the attorney that handled Loeb's lawsuit against the county. Tucked into the eastern end of Long Island, it's home to 1.5 million people and is bordered only by Nassau County. 
and then New York City to the west, Long Island Sound, and the Atlantic Ocean. Other counties in the New York metropolitan area have borders that are frequently crossed by police and civilian vehicles, but Suffolk is an exception. To become what it is now, Suffolk County operated unobserved for decades. At over 85% white and predominantly Catholic, the area is less than diverse. Despite a robust Latino population dispersed throughout Long Island's East End, communities like Smithtown, where Burke grew up, emerged largely through the phenomena of white flight, where Caucasian families dealt with the specter of urban crime by fleeing from the five boroughs of New York and heading toward the sea. It's ironic then that Suffolk itself became known for, brutal, for such a brutal murder case. On April 21, 1979, Joseph Sabina found his 13-year-old neighbor, John Pius Jr., lying motionless in the yard of Dogwood Elementary School. Stones had been stuffed down his throat in order to asphyxiate him. The resulting trial was an odd convergence of the people who would run the county's law enforcement years later. The prosecutor assigned to the case was a very young prosecutor, Spada, and Burke was just 14 years old and he served as one of Spada's key witnesses. In the end, Smithtown locals Michael Quattrarato, his brother Peter Quattrarato, Thomas Ryan, and Bresnik, all high school age boys, were convicted of murder. For some, the verdict did not bring closure. One of those people is attorney Frank Bress, who is now a law professor at New York Law School, and he defended Bresnik in a 1986 appeal. Burke was a low-level burglar and drug dealer, Bress said, and it made his testimony completely unreliable. The lawyer ran a year-long clinical program on Bresnik's appeal with eight of his students while he was teaching at New York's Pace University, immersing himself in what he perceived to be inconsistencies of evidence. Today, he believes the same thing he believed then, that all four boys are actually innocent. Theories abound about who might have actually committed the murder. Some believe that it was the boy's father, or possibly just a local drug dealer. It's difficult to talk about the case without acknowledging the degree of doubt about the true identity of the killer. I could see right away that Spada was dirty, Brees says. The way he conducted himself, moving between prosecuting the case and handling the civil cases, that's highly unethical. So for those of you who are not American, in the United States, you're not supposed to prosecute a case as an attorney and then handle the civil case. You're not supposed to do both. It's one or the other. If you're the prosecutor, you are then to refer them to a civil lawyer to handle civilly suing, but you can't do both. It, it is truly unethical to do both. Um, Bess's recollection of Burke as a small-time burglar and drug dealer was corroborated by an anonymous source that claims Burke mostly trafficked in small things like marijuana. Selling weed, the source notes, was a slightly bigger deal in 79, obviously. He shares Bruce's conclusion that Burke's criminal proclivities made him a malleable source for prosecution. But even in those days, Suffolk cops had a bad reputation. According to research, the department had a 97% confession rate for murder suspects, a number three or four times higher than most American homicide squads in their very best years. 
and there were allegations that officers would break all sorts of eggs in order to make an omelet. Like I said, these are those phone book cops. And the reason back in the day that they would use phone books is because they didn't leave marks. Examples cited by the researchers included a man who claimed that, here we go, just like I said, a man who claimed that a thin telephone book was placed against his head before he was beaten with concrete and another who said cops tied a slip of wow a slip of paper to his penis and then held it oh wow okay i thought boston cops were bad and then held it over a paper shredder threatening to feed his penis through the blades none of what's happening is a surprise to me because burke is the same guy now that he has always been a, course, a source that went to school with him says, he used to tell people he wanted to be a cop so he could get away with breaking the law. I knew a lot of people who liked that, who said they only wanted to be cops so they could break the law. It's a pretty common reason. And those are the people who tend to get weeded out when they fail the psyche valve. That's the kind of stuff that tends to pop up in, uh, in, a, in a psyche valve. Burke was officially hired by the Suffolk County Police Department in 1986 as a 21-year-old. He was promoted to sergeant in 1991 when he was 26 and reportedly had Spada, the prosecutor's ear. Two years later, Burke was having sex with convicted prostitutes inside his patrol car. Burke has since admitted to driving drunk and using the power of his badge to avoid paying the price. Court documents reveal that in 2011, he struck a state-owned vehicle, abandoned the scene, and failed to report the incident. He later concealed the crimes by serendipitously paying thousands of dollars for repairs. When asked about people's allegations of paying for sex work within a strip club, a spokesperson for the alleged strip club states that it was rebranded and is now upscale and sophisticated. But a dancer who used to work at the club between 2003 and 2004 confirms the description of the place as a cop hangout though she admits that she wouldn't know Burke's face from thousands of others because of all the heroin she was abusing. She adds that empty liquor cabinets were used for sex work and the ownership at the time, which she describes as shadowy, encouraged prostitution and that one dancer at the club had a Felix the Cat magic bag filled with all kinds of sex toys and other gear for female submissive S&M sessions. So during all of this, and the reason that this is such a big deal is because the incident with Loeb happened during an investigation into a serial killer. The first discovery of human remains was made by the side of the Ocean Parkway in Oak Beach on December 11, 2010. The investigation was prompted by the search for Shannon Gilbert, 24-year-old sex worker, who had disappeared in the area in May that year after fleeing from a client's home and making an emergency 911 call, saying that someone was trying to kill her. A month, a month after her disappearance, the Suffolk County Police Department's Missing Persons Bureau asked Officer John Malaya to search for Gilbert with his cadaver dog, a German Shepherd named Blue. Over the course of the summer of 2010, Malaya unsuccessfully searched the gated beach community where Gilbert had last been seen. He made a new attempt at a search on December 11th, staying close to the shoulder of the parkway. 
Malaya based his choice of search area on FBI data, indicating that dumped bodies are frequently found close to roadways. Despite thick vegetation and a light layer of snow, the cadaver dog alerted to a scent which the pair tracked to a skeleton in the disintegrating burlap bag. The remains were later identified as Melissa Bartholomew. Police discovered three additional bodies while searching the scene for further evidence. The bodies of the four victims, Maureen Brainard, Melissa Bartholomew, Megan Waterman, and Amber Costello were found approximately 500 feet from each other. In March 2011, the partial remains of Jessica Taylor were found along the Ocean Parkway. Eight years earlier in 2003, Taylor's partial remains had been found in Maynardville, New York in Suffolk County. The next month in April 2011, police discovered three additional sets of remains, an unidentified female toddler, an unidentified Asian person, which means that they couldn't figure out if it was male or female, and Valerie Mack, whose partial remains, like those of Jessica Taylor, had been previously found in Manorville years earlier in November 2000. Two more bodies were found in Nassau County. An unidentified woman, whose partial remains had previously been found on Fire Island in 1996, and an unidentified woman with a distinct tattoo of peaches, who was later found to be the mother of the unidentified toddler found in Suffolk. On May 9, 2011, police speculated that because of the similarities in the cases, Valerie Mack, who at the time was unidentified, and Jessica Taylor, may have been murdered by a second separate killer. On November 29, 2011, however, police announced that they believed one person was responsible for all 10 murders and that the perpetrator is almost certainly from Long Island. The single killer theory stems from common characteristics between the condition of the remains and forensic evidence related to the bodies. In June 2011, Suffolk County Police announced a $25,000 reward for information leading to an arrest in the Long Island murders. Now, Shannon Gilbert's remains were finally located on Oak Beach in December 2011, 19 months after her disappearance. The cause of her death is contested. Now, in 2015, before James Burke was sentenced to 46 months along with three years of supervised release, he resigned as chief of police. Plus, according to the Federal Bureau of Prisons, he did eventually get released in 2019. Now, Thomas Spada, the prosecutor who had been covering for him, he and one of his top aides, he, they were convicted in 2019 on counts of conspiracy, obstruction of justice, witness tampering, and civil rights violations over what happened to Mr. Loeb. So basically, while all this was happening, they were investigating these bodies and Police Chief Burke was not allowing the FBI to really carry out their investigation. He wouldn't really let them do what needed to be done. He seemed to be covering. And so finally, when Loeb was able to file his complaint, they were able to take him out. They got a new chief and finally the FBI was able to do an actual investigation into a serial killer. So this police corruption caused a possible serial killer to go free. This case is still unsolved. So while he is covering up the fact that he is sleeping with prostitutes and possibly 
could be they still to this day don't even know if he just was looking at porn that had young children in it or if he did anything but while he's trying to cover up whatever he was covering up he was impeding a federal investigation into a serial killer who to this day has not been found and the time that was wasted with his cover-up and with the district attorney's cover-up that could be the difference between them having been able to catch the person and not because since then it appears that this killer has gone completely cold they could have just picked up ship and they could have gone to another country for all anybody knows and they could have lost their chance to catch a serial killer all because this corrupt police chief was trying to cover up the fact that he was still having sex with prostitutes and that's just absolutely insane and ridiculous and not only that but because the prosecutor was helping him cover it up so that is the story of the long island serial killer who is still yet to be caught all because a corrupt chief of police was too busy covering his ass and hiding the fact that he was still paying prostitutes and you know doing all kinds of crazy things with them so join me next time when we look into a narco korea cult in which people were using palameyombo to bring the cartels luck and in the meantime i hope you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things <laughs>